Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. And welcome to yet another episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me, mostly always, is Nick. What's up? How's it going? It is uh, nearing the end of the month of August in Hawaii, and I am melting into a puddle so hot. <laughs> My air conditioner has finally like stressed out and died on me. be a lot of hair floating in that puddle. Yeah, it's like uh, like if Ron Jeremy went into a shower and exploded. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh, who, who has more hair? You or Ron Jeremy? I'm going to go with Ron Jeremy. <laughs> you have the hide on him. Yeah, I, I feel like seeing his work, I'm going to go with Ron <laughs> Jeremy. Uh, so much like. Ron Jeremy, who is going to die in prison, we're going to talk about the Russo-Japanese War Part 2. That didn't flow, but that's what we're... <laughs> I, was it a good segue? Flowed good enough. I'm not... I'm that flowed as well as he's going to into prison. I quit. Um, we're talking about Part 2 of our Russo-Japanese War series. Flowed as well as the money coming out of the keister. No. Oh. Prison wallet. So, when we left you last week, Japan had trapped the Russian Far East fleet within the confines of Port Arthur and settled in for a siege. Now, Port Arthur was something of a natural fortress for the Russians, uh, and the only real damage done to their fleet at the outset of the battle that uh, was like, remember when like the Japanese torpedo boats kind of attacked them and ran off, and like they lightly damaged three ships uh, out in the open ocean, which then retreated back into the port in which they were safe. Um, a- after that, they ran into the port and were protected by the mountains and shore defenses, like to the point that it was hard for Japan to even try to like try to lob shells over the defensive works and hit the ships. Um, though there is a small problem. Right. The protection of this port uh, ended up being what trapped the Russian fleet entirely. They could only leave the port in one direction during a certain time of day because the tides would recede so much that the ships would run aground if they attempted to flee. Uh, hmm. th- this this seems like a, a pretty big because uh, like this remember this is the port that they like desperately wanted. Right. I feel like that that's a pretty big weak point, right? Like we can only deploy the ships in this one small window of the day, or they'll just hit some rocks and fall over. I mean, it's for the warm water. It's it's a it's a pretty big like Achilles heel here. Um, so in order to counter that, the Japanese fleet just had to sit outside and wish a motherfucker would. And like knowing that if the Russians left, we know where they're going to leave from. Yeah. We can just attack them. Uh, and like, and should like the the Russians attempt to like 
it, like like go out to the open ocean for battle, they wouldn't be able to get in formation. Like they would just get nuked as soon as they left the port. Yeah, one ship at a time. Yeah, that they're fucked. Yeah, uh, it's it's like a bad action movie fight. Like I got it, gentlemen. Let's go at the Japanese fleet one ship at a time. They won't see it coming. <laughs> or they could have done the old. All right, check this out, guys. Take our flags down, put up some white sheets, put a red dot in the middle. Okay, now hold on Japanese. to that thought. And hold on to that until the third episode, because that kind of happens. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in the opening days of the blockade the port, uh, of the port, the two Russian ships attempted to make a break for it. Um, they, what they were trying to do is get to Vladivostok, which is like the nearest base. Uh, where Russian, where more Russian ships were based, so like they were trying to rush there, and one of them was the commander of the entire uh, East uh, Far East Squadron. So like he's like, guys, I have an idea. I'm gonna take these two ships. I'm gonna make a break for it to mi- so like we can get support, right? Right. Immediately hit sea mines. <laughs> oh my god! And the Russian uh, flagship, the Petro. Pavlovsk, under the command of their fleet commander, Vice Admiral Stepan Makarov, sank immediately, killing almost everybody on board, including Makarov. Holy shit. That is the first of several admirals that the Japanese are going to kill. It's going to be great. Really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like The only people less safe than a, like, a Russian conscript during this war is a Russian admiral, which is something Ooh. I support. <laughs> the two worst ranks I hear you want to be in. Uh, after that, the Russians decided, you know, we're going to stay in the port. Uh, I would. Yeah. So Japan resorted just bombarding the port, uh, not doing a whole lot of damage. Uh, meanwhile, that's when Japan uh, launched their offensive through, like, their ground offensive through what is today the People's Republic of Korea, more commonly known as North Korea. Mm. Pretty much unopposed. Uh, because the Russian commander in the Far East, a guy named Alexei Koropotkin, which is a name we're going to become familiar with because he's a big dumbass. He's also the minister of war. Um, he knew that uh, like the Russian supply line was so extended, because uh, like, at this point it's literally a continent long just about. Uh, that would mean that if he was to defend every inch of Korea... Uh, it would take like six months to get him up to strength and he would pretty much just be fighting a constant losing battle. So he, he gave orders for the Russians to pull all the way back and allow the Japanese to stomp through Korea without a fight to buy him some time. Um, And he would instead hold out around the Yalu river, which is kind of funny uh, because this exact same thing would kind of happen to the Americans during the Korean war. (laughs) Uh, And, pretty much just uh, try to defend the Japanese from coming into Manchuria. There's a slight issue with the Russians' plan for the area, though. For one, the Russian commanders were very racist and thought very little of Japanese soldiers that they were fighting them. Uh, but they also thought uh, very little of the local Korean populace because they were they were the kind of racists that don't see the difference between Asians. So uh, they, those they, racists. Yeah, it's like, you know, there's there's shades of racist. They're that kind. Uh, brands, if you will. I don't know. Like, they thought um, the Koreans were the same as the Japanese, and they would definitely take the side of the Japanese because they never opened a history book or something um, and, and treated them like shit. Uh, there was, like, lots of outright murder, um, enslaver, enslavement, uh, rape, things like that. Uh, so when the Japanese marched through, the Koreans kind of turned to them as the lesser of two evils. Okay. Which 
will be the first and only time this happens in history. Um, furthermore, the Japanese learned some lessons during their wars in China, and they knew that they could move faster if they hired local porters to uh, like carry their supplies for them. So the, the Japanese paid them incredibly well in order to win them over to carry their stuff. Uh, and also they made sure to like tread lightly through their areas. They didn't take their food. Um, this meant that like pretty quickly they kind of won over the local population's semi-loyalty at least enough uh, for them to tell them all about the Russian positions on the other side what? of the river. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking awesome. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, this friendship between Korea and Japan would never change or lead to horrible, horrible war crimes that Japan refuses to acknowledge to this day or anything like that. Um, this meant the Japanese marched faster than the Russians ever thought they would because they didn't have to carry their own shit. And they knew exactly where they were dug in. Uh, because the Russians thought so little of their enemies, they put most of their strength at the easiest crossing points at the main road, leaving only tiny detachments in other places, assuming that the Japanese were so dumb they would just march straight up the road into the Russian positions. I mean, duh. But the Yalu was a big-ass river that would require bridges to cross it. Uh, so the Japanese began building one in full view of the Russians, knowing it would be targeted by the Russians. Uh, while that was happening, they simply built nine other ones while the Russians were Jesus. distracted. <laughs> because the Russians were like, ha, those dumbasses are building a bridge right there. Let's <laughs> yeah. destroy it. Let's and like at this, it at this point, the Japanese have to be so shocked that the Russians are so racist that this plan's working. Like, don't look at these other nine bridges that we're building. But just distract all of your fire over there. Cool. Thanks, buddies. I think once they saw that one going up, they are like, fucking idiots. Everybody, go. Like, yeah, the whole uh, Russian army. Yeah. We see your bridge, you absolute idiots. Just sitting out there in the middle of nowhere like you wanted us to see it. <laughs> yeah. This isn't certainly a trap. There's, like, uh, fa- a fake army right behind it, too. Yeah. Also, like, I have to feel bad for the Japanese bridge, like, engineers that were sent out there solely to get oh, murdered yeah. by the Russians. They're like, wait, where's everybody else going? I heard something about <laughs> ten bridges? Oh, no. Why do we have hay soldiers behind us with <laughs> broomsticks for guns? Uh, while this happened, the, uh, the Japanese began their attack, and they immediately went around the main Russian forces and attacked the detachments and pushed straight through them. Uh, one of the, the, the main Japanese uh, tactics was to uh, try to penetrate a flank and then encircle you. Uh, and this is uh, pretty much what happens to every Russian force throughout every battle of this war. Oh, and they never learn. <laughs> really, and that's and Kuropotkin will be in charge through most of these. Um, so he saw this happening and ordered the frontline commander to begin a withdrawal, but the commander refused, said uh, because the commander thought that victory was within his grasp. Because uh, this is like quite literally one of those like we got him right where we want him, all over the place. <laughs> Dude's getting fucking bayoneted, and he's like, got him right where I want him. Yep. Uh, and then he, the, the commander actually sent a telegram to the Tsar bragging about he was going to win the first battle of the war for the Empire. <laughs> During the battle? Yes. That's fucking confidence. That's awesome. Meanwhile, Kuropotkin's like, could you fucking not? You're making me look bad. <laughs> Uh, Kuropotkin will not win a, a single battle That's during this war. Awesome. That you're you're so going to see why. Funny. <laughs> Instead, the Japanese encircled the main Russian position with very little effort. They, uh, they moved a custom-built 4.7-inch howitzer into position 
And after that, they rained 60-pound shells onto oh, the Russians for like a hours. Pin my right artillery. <laughs> it was like a, a, a purpose-built like siege gun. And each shell weighed 60 pounds, and they fired hundreds of them <laughs> for hours. And uh, the, to their credit, the Russians were able to fight off the Japanese for a little while. But uh, like other units uh, had withdrawn, with, like when um, Kuropotkin gave the order. So it left one specific... A unit like smack dab in the middle with no artillery support um so like after they started getting pounded by this massive monster piece of siege weaponry the russians decided it was time to run but they were surrounded so they ran right into japanese soldiers who killed them or captured them pretty pretty much immediately without much of a fight it wasn't a fighting withdrawal at all huh. uh and the japanese army was making quick progress over land their goal was to meet their fleet on the other side of Port Arthur, totally encircling it and cutting off the defenders from even their own terrible supply line that they had been dependent on and pretty much been left out to dry about. Uh, the Russians knew this, and they knew that, uh, th- that to be their target. So they set out to stop them at two battles called the Battle of Nanshan and Liaoyang. And, like I already alluded to, Kuropotkin does not win a single battle during this war. And it could be argued that either does Russia, um, and both of these battles are going to fail horribly for very different reasons. Now, at Nanshan, the overall commander was not a military man at all. Uh, he was a guy who was a former cop who kind of schmoozed and bribed his way into a general's uniform because the czar kind of liked him. Oh. There's a guy named Alexander Folk. Um, furthermore, the Russians had just hired a bunch of Chinese laborers to build their defenses rather than building them themselves. Um, dozens of them were actually just Japanese spies really, <laughs> who purposely sabotaged the defenses and, <laughs> and then let the army know exactly what and where to, to expect uh, resistance. Oh. When the battle began, the Russians still managed to do incredibly well, holding off the Japanese despite being badly outnumbered. And that's something that's like pretty common throughout this war. The Russians do really well defending. And only defending. The second they have to maneuver anything, shit just falls apart. Um, And the Japanese attacks just don't end. So eventually they just defeat the Russians through attrition, running out of supply, like both man and material uh, attrition, because the Russians were at a a net negative, uh, both of those, since pretty much the beginning. Right. Um, The Japanese assault wasn't exactly imaginative, but it was historic. Uh, thick waves of Japanese infantry, three divisions wide, stormed the hill, only to be mowed, by, mowed down by Russian machine gun fire, as well as artillery deployed in the rear uh, as one of history's first uses of indirect fire, like firing over one unit and supporting another one. So, like, congrats, Japan. You, uh, you it experienced history for <laughs> <laughs> Uh, though the front line, the, the front line commander was a guy named Colonel uh, Trekalyov, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, who had fought the Japanese off for hours um, and was pretty much the only officer down there guiding the, the battle and had been left by most others. He was shocked to find the entire reserve detachment, which was to be ordered into battle to relieve him uh, and plug any holes in the defenses. But he was shocked to find them who had not seen any combat yet under the personal command of folk retreating. Um, there's a reason for that. Folk wasn't a coward or scared. He was just bad at his job. Uh, oh, Folk, okay. who, who was a general, 
had received orders for his unit to retreat. This included Trikalyovs. Instead, Folk did not tell anybody else and just ran. Uh, when he left, he left Trikalyov to be surrounded uh, because that just keeps happening. Every Trikalyov time. So- Trikalyov's yeah, soldiers retired pretty much out of ammo after fighting off nine different division strength charges. That's fucking insane. And realized that they were now on their own. Um, so Trikalyov shrugged and ordered his men to launch into a fighting, unsupported retreat all the way back to Port Arthur. They succeeded, but destroyed pretty much anything that could be considered a force that was able to fight. Uh, so this is the only Russian unit that would be able to pull off a fighting retreat during the war, and it destroyed itself doing it. Jesus. Now, at Liaoyang, uh, both the Japanese and Russians knew that they had to win. It was the hub of the entire southern Manchurian railway, and holding it would mean a stranglehold on the Russian supply system. Uh, because remember, the Trans-Siberian Railroad isn't finished yet. Right. Kuropatkin knew this and built three different lines of defenses and planned to switch to a defense in depth, uh, which anybody, uh, we talked about it kind of vaguely uh, in a previous episode, is what kind of what Germany switched to during the end of World War I, where they, instead of holding a trench for a prolonged period of time, they would fight at one line only long enough to inflict a ton of losses before falling back to the next, which would then be able to support shooting into the first uh, position, kind of making an endless cascade of casualties for the Japanese. Right. Uh, and, and they wouldn't stand and fight to the death. They would pull back, be able to fight from another position, and continue shooting the Japanese. Uh, it's, it's not something that works great, um, but... So this probably wouldn't have been something that would have worked great against the Japanese, simply because the Russians never once made the Japanese retreat due to casualties, um, because they simply wouldn't. So like defense and depth really wouldn't work. <laughs> They're like, okay, I guess we'll just die some more. It's probably not a plan I'd like to follow. God. Yeah, like imagine uh, like sitting in an officer's meeting or something in like Japanese headquarters, and like you're a soldier like on guard duty or something. Like, wow, they arrayed all these trenches so they can kill thousands of us. And the general's like, yes, perfect. I like where this is going. <laughs> this is playing right into our plan of killing thousands of you. <laughs> Just me overhearing it like, say, say again? <laughs> it's like that uh, uh, the South Park movie where it's like, ah, yes, Team Human Shield. <laughs> yeah, the, the meat shield. <laughs> yeah. Now, this may have worked if the Japanese, again, did not know exactly what his plans were due to Japanese spies and Chinese informants. Though the Russian defenses were strong enough that it didn't end up mattering much as the Japanese drive to continue attacking no matter what would not break. Japanese attacks were repulsed over and over again, only to be relaunched with very little time in between. Unfortunately, Kuropotkin's defense in depth meant he couldn't launch counterattacks. So, like, as the Japanese pushed him back to one line to the next, one line to the next, they slowly inched forward. And, like, he was, since he was so uh, attached to his defense in depth, he didn't leave anything in, in reserve. So he wouldn't, like, Kuropatkin refused to launch counterattacks because he thought it would harm his ability to defend the other trenches. Right. So this meant like there was very o- obvious openings where he could have launched a counterattack when the Japanese were withdrawing in between attacks that he could have driven them from the field, maybe actually won a battle. <laughs> and, and instead, he just kind of sat on his ass to the point that like it shocked the Japanese that he wasn't counterattacking. 
to the point that he's like, he must have something else planned. He wouldn't just sit there. Nope. <laughs> yeah, again and again during this war, the Japanese assume the Russians are much better at war than what they actually end up being. Uh, so the, the Japanese kept up the attack, even throughout the night, which was rare for the time. Um, and this is like the first war where people are busting out like spotlights. Oh, wow. uh, to, yeah. So like then that never really stopped them. They're like, OK, they're pointing spotlights so they can guide in machine gun fire, whatever, run under the spotlights. Ooh. <laughs> it's known as the moth defense. Yeah. Fuck that. <laughs> this forced the Russians to fight around the clock without support and with all of the reserves committed to battle constantly. Oh, that sounds awful. Yeah, just like, have you ever been up so late, like, been awake so long, you start hallucinating? Yes. I can assume that's every Russian soldier at this point. <laughs> and, and not to mention their supplies began to dwindle, and they began to, like, just collapse from exhaustion. In one case, a Russian position fell because three Russian units accidentally began to battle with one another. What? Like, yeah, like one, uh, it was like one uh, squadron or something shifted positions to, like, plug a hole in the middle of the night. Which led the, another Russian position to think that they were Japanese to open fire. And then another Russian position saw that that one was opening fire, so that must be Japanese. So they opened fire on both of them. What? Like, yeah. This meant they actually managed to lose a battle to themselves. Um. Like, the, those three units so severely fucked each other up that, like, when the Japanese launched an assault on that position they just were really confused because there was nobody there anymore. Jesus. They're just like, huh, there's just a big old hole here. We didn't do this. Somewhere like a Japanese captain's like, "Uh, congratulations, men, we won a great victory. It's like (laughs) the Russians are bayoneting one one another. (laughs) In the background, just fucking each other (laughs) up. I thought they were like all sitting in the same trench and they like turn and look at each other like, and they're like, oh, and they start fucking (laughs) fighting. I think at some point that is what happened because like it's dark they're confused and exhausted so like once one person starts shooting I think people just start shooting wildly in every direction which I mean that that is on brand for other series regarding Russian soldiers so it's not surprising I mean I, I, don't, I can't say I wouldn't have done that no I've been so sleep deprived I've been kind of high and shot at things that didn't actually exist thankfully it happened to not be another soldier oh that's good yeah. It wasn't another person? Nope, it wasn't. It was a bush. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was, I thought the bush was a person. And I let bur- uh, like I let a burst of 240 ammo out. Fucked the bush up. And then like everybody like ran to guard towers and everything because like the Taliban was coming. And uh th- that actually happened previously when um someone else I, I was asleep and someone in the guard tower saw uh like a flare go up. Uh, and thought it was an RPG and just started wildly firing into the distance. <laughs> it, I guess the long and short of this is soldiers shouldn't have guns. <laughs> yeah, they should have bedtimes. <laughs> so this time Kuropotkin knew the Japanese were going to attempt to encircle him and managed to or- order an organized withdrawal from the area before they could actually do it. So he saw it coming this time. Yeah, like he, he's learning, uh, though at this point, Kuropotkin had been uh, so like smashed by the Japanese time and time again. He reported that this withdrawal, which was a retreat with extra steps, right? Right. He, re- right. he sent a, uh, uh, an, a letter to the czar, like as if it was a huge victory. Look, I got your first letter from this one guy saying that you guys won and uh, clearly you guys got stomped. Yeah, 
and then this just led to the, the czar yelling at him like a lot, which sure. Probably because the czar keeps putting in bets on his own team, but clearly it's not working out. <laughs> All your like, I want to know how someone managed to like wire a victory, like tell him about a, like a victory, and nobody like give a heads up to the czar, like yo, we lost. <laughs> like, there's literally hundreds of thousands of people, and they're like, no, like, we should just we should just let him be. I mean, I know like conscripts aren't going to do that because they don't know how to send telegraphs, yeah. and they're probably just wondering where their next food like meals coming from. But like other offices, especially um, like the aristocracy of the the Russian military was is pretty much like palace intrigue where people were like stabbing each other in the back to try to further their own career. Oh yeah. Like that's low hanging fruit all day, baby. Like that motherfucker just lied about winning a battle. The evidence is all the dead Russians. Yeah. Now, uh, after this, the Japanese had a land route to Port Arthur and, uh, on the land side, Port Arthur was defended by around 80,000, uh, Russian soldiers. But because of the struggle to get material into the area and like build defenses like concrete fortifications and redoubts and things like that uh, they they got about half of them done and though some of those were half finished so uh they supported those with trench lines being dug and with intersecting fields of fire mm-hmm. if that sounds kind of like world war one that's a trend Sounded like it yeah uh prior to this the russians based a lot of their land defenses around the surrounding hillsides I wish there were many, but he knew uh, Kuropatkin, that is. He didn't have enough men to hold them over a prolonged period of time. And he wasn't about to be getting any reinforcements. So he abandoned most of them to the 150,000-man strong Japanese 3rd Army that was marching their way towards them. The Japanese set up massive field guns on top of these hills. Which, Fuck. <laughs> yeah, you have to think, like, Kuropatkin's like, ah, clever girl. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like, god damn congratulations you just owned yourself like it's incredible that like he had deployed um and seen indirect fire be deployed and he couldn't think like i feel like this massive uh like high point all around us would make a really great place for cannons to be set up i should defend these otherwise they're gonna put cannons on them and he didn't but uh and he didn't just like uh, the guy's uh, Baron Nogi Marasaki, who's the or Marasuki, who's the the Japanese commander of the Third Army. He uh, he didn't just like wheel regular artillery up there. He wheeled massive two hundred and eighty millimeter Armstrong howitzer guns that were per- that used to be naval cannons. Oh God! <laughs> Who did he have wheel that up? A whole lot of conscripts. Yeah, <laughs> fuck. You know, Here's the thing about conscripts. If you have a problem, every problem can be solved with the proper application of conscripts because in the end, that problem's either solved or you have less conscripts, which is also a positive on its own. So when you just strap hundreds or thousands of Japanese conscripts to tow this shit up a hillside, you're good. Conscripts are also known for having massive quads. <laughs> a lifting cannons all day. <laughs> yeah. But you know, by leaving these hills, the Russians allowed the uh, the Japanese to just move into areas unopposed, which led to Port Arthur almost being encircled from the land and sea without a fight. Jesus um, Christ! These hills could see for miles around them and had a clear view of fire directly into the city of Port Arthur, but not the port itself. Uh, at which point, they began using to shell the living shit out of the city. Uh, the bombardment uh, from the hills started at 4 a.m. and continued for hours. 
That is when the Japanese commander, Baron Nogi Mirosuke, ordered a full frontal assault against the Russian positions that were based around the hills closest to the port. The most forward defensive lines the Russians had uh, had before the city itself were those hills. So, like, you had to take the hills, and then you had a little else left but to take the city. There's a little problem with this, however. During their bombardment, a downpour had started. This churned the dirt into mud and floated the nearby Ta River. Un- uh, for- furthermore, the cannons uh, were firing. Where remember, it's like this is 1904, so they're producing huge amounts of black smoke. Right. This meant that when the Japanese commander ordered, ordered his men into battle, they couldn't see where the fuck they were going. Uh, they ran into like carpets of black smoke that they couldn't see through, drowned in the flooded river, or got stuck oh. in the mud. Oh. And then when and this broke up their attack formation. So by the time they got close, like in small groups, they just got lit up by Russian searchlights and then were tore through with Maxim machine guns and artillery. That sounds fucking awful. Yeah. Uh, Nogi called off the attack momentarily so he could shell the Russians some more before sending his men back in. This time with explicit orders to press the attack no matter what. And the Russians held on despite being badly outnumbered, outgunned, and out everything else. And uh, they did receive some support in the form of naval strikes from ships within the ports, but it was really inaccurate. Uh, shells from the big naval guns slammed into the mass of Japanese infantry, causing horrific casualties. But before the Russians could, could like celebrate, maybe launch a counterattack, their ships then shelled them too. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> That'll teach you to get ahead of yourself and think <laughs> you're winning. That'll te- teach you to be a Russian conscript and feel happiness. <laughs> yeah. God, that there, sucks. <laughs> there was also an event where one Russian commander thought he had been given an order to pull back, starting a weird game of telephone down the line of 80,000 men, where confused frontline commanders began trying to figure out who gave orders to withdraw and where they came from, and others were given orders to hold the line. In the confusion, some Russian soldiers pulled back while others stayed still. Through all of this, the Japanese really only won the day due to massive manpower advantage and huge incompetence in the Russian chain of command and communication. Uh, They finally forced the Russians to retreat from the hill before they were entirely destroyed. The victory cost the Russians a few hundred dead. Um, I think it was like 500. But the Japanese over 1,200 with double that wounded. And this will become a trend. Uh, Almost every battle the Japanese win they have a lot more dead and wounded. I imagine. Uh, with the exception of one major uh, outlier, which we'll talk about next episode. Now, with the fall of the outer portions of the port's defensive lines and the fleet trapped inside, the Tsar began to panic. He was frantically reaching out to his cousin, that being our, our friend uh. Willie, asking where his navy was. Like, remember from last episode, Tsar uh, Nicholas was 100% under the impression that the Germans were going to help him in this war. And he's like, hey, where's the Kriegsmarine or whatever those they were called back then? Like, could you please bail me out? And what the hell? He said the Japanese were subhuman and now they're beating my ass. What the fuck? That's when the Kaiser just kind of shrugged and said that he never told the Tsar that he'd help them in the event of a war, but did promise to amount him the amount, to up the amount of loans the German Empire could give Russia, which, to be fair, was most of their economy at this point. Nice. Uh, But just to show everyone how much of an absolute two-faced bastard the Germans were, they also gave huge amounts of loans to 
Wait for it. The Empire of Japan. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> You've activated my trap card. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. Kaiser Wilhelm might be the worst cousin in European history. Actually, don't quote me on that. That covers a lot of history and a lot of inbred cousins, and they're all bad. So fucking funny. Anyway, the Tsar was desperately attempting to break the siege of Port Arthur, which might be, uh, uh, he thought if, if he could do that, it might be able to turn the tide of the war. That's when Viceroy Igveni Alexiev. Viceroy? Uh, uh, yep. It's a, yeah, it's aristocracy stupid. Sounds like a Star Wars. Yeah, he's also uh, a real big idiot. Uh, he's a former admiral and overall commander of Port Arthur, uh, though it helped that he was not there. And uh, he demanded an aggressive naval attack uh, from the fleet at Port Arthur to storm out and go to Vladivostok, uh, where they'd be able to link up with more units of the Russian Navy. But they have to leave the port first. Yes. Uh, at which yes. point they'd, they'd be able to Voltron together and defeat the Japanese on the high seas. How'd that uh, work out? Uh, good news, Nick. We're going to get there, and it's not great. <laughs> Meanwhile, Admiral Vilgelm Vitglef, who had uh, replaced Makarov as the commander of the Pacific Squadron at Port Arthur, was way more cautious. Um, and he was also born without knees, from what I heard. <laughs> just, uh, just floppy legs. <laughs> yeah. <Just> also <laughs> born, all, <laughs> like, like the old guy from fucking King yeah, of the Cotton. Hill. <laughs> Admiral Cotton. Um he favored staying in port and supporting the land war, which at this point had arguably worked much better than anything else the Russians had done so far. He figured he could do this until the newly created second Pacific squadron could make the trip to relieve him. Now I had to bring up the second Pacific squadron momentarily, but put that in the back of your mind. That's what the whole next episode's about. Okay. But you, all you need to know right now as uh, Vitglef, uh, Vitgelf, uh, his name's fucking terrible. Um, it's even bad for a Russian, which I'm pretty sure that's German. I don't know. Um, he was under the impression that there was a squadron coming to relieve him. And technically there was. So he thought, why the fuck am I going to leave the port? I have a whole squadron coming to relieve me. I can just sit here till they get here and then go support them when they chase off the Japanese. Now, uh, the, vo- the Viceroy thought Vitgelf was a coward, wanting to hide in the port. Instead, uh, instead uh, he thought that he should charge out of the port and assault the Japanese uh, and fight his way to Vladivostok. No. Czar, the Tsar, being a permanent dumbass, agreed and gave the orders to Vitgelf uh, and, to make his move to sally out of the port and fight him. Faced with imperial orders upon what was almost certainly the threat of execution or imprisonment, should he re- ignore them, he followed them. So the admiral set off for Va- Vladivostok aboard his new flagship, the Tsarevich, with the rest of the port fleet behind him. He attempted to maneuver in, a- in such a way to buy time for the rest of the fleet to catch up. But the Japanese Navy had an added advantage of technology. You see, the Japanese had sent a young naval advisor named Akiyama Sayuki to America years before, in about 1897. Once there, he saw the U.S. Navy using a revolutionary new technology known as wireless telegraphy, something that we now just know as radio. He knew this would change the entire way that navies were organized, can, controlled, and deployed. Uh, 
Uh, and because previously, uh, the Navy was controlled by a flag-based order yeah. system that, that required you to be able to see each other's ships. This is bad. Uh, so he sent message back to Japan about this new radio technology. And Japan immediately adopted it. Though they found the British versions uh, of the radio sets that they had hard to use and expensive, as, as well as like very hard to repair should it break. So they simply made their own. That was much better. Nice. The Russians attempted to adopt the same system in 1900, but they bought German radio systems. However, they lacked the ability to buy enough of them, to, and uh, they lacked the ability to maintain them, and to operate them effectively. This meant that only some ships in the Russian Navy had radios, while almost all of the Japanese Navy did. So you can imagine how well could a, like, a flagship, like if you were, uh, Vitge- if you were Vitgelf or whatever, if only some of your ships had radios, that meant like almost none of your ships had radios, right? Like you couldn't pass an order that well. You still had to use a flag system. I feel like their ships just had a string and a tin cup. <laughs> that would probably work better. Quick, oh, our new what? radios came in. Like, this is a Campbell's soup can? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Campbell's soup, I'm coming at you loud with clam chowder. So it was very easy for the Japanese scout ships to, like, see the Navy, the Russian Navy leaving Port Arthur and be like, hey, the Russians are coming. So, like, then the Japanese could get it, get their shit in order for the coming battle while the Russians were kind of just sprinting towards Vladivostok. So the Japanese gave chase, leading to a running naval battle that saw both sides shelling the absolute piss out of one another. The Japanese commander, Admiral Togo Hiyahachihiro, uh, he was uh, on the flagship of the Mikasa, was hit 20 different fucking times oh, alone. Oh, fuck. Though this is where we learn something about the main armaments of the two navies. The Japanese favored shells that exploded on contact, causing a ton of damage to the outer and upper decks, but without most of the armor piercing that you would think that you would need. Um, These ships were designed to kill crew, set fires, and cause havoc as they blew pieces apart, though not always maybe outright sink their opponents. The Russians liked armor piercing rounds that would explode on a timed fuse. The problem was uh, this was the early 1900s, and those were incredibly unreliable, uh, as was the armor piercing capabilities of those shells. As soon as it leans a barrel, it just explodes. (laughs) That would suck. Uh, a lot of the, the reason why that they're really uh, unreliable is some of the stuff that we talked about last episode with Russian uh, materials or like manufacturing and their economy tanking. So like their manufacturing abilities sank. Um, so the shells are made using cheap materials, meaning they weren't very armor piercing and explode on a very unreliable <laughs> timer. It's, Our yeah. armor piercing shells seem to be made of cotton. <laughs> uh, this is wood, sir. Um, <laughs> yeah. That meant a large percentage of Russian direct hits did absolutely nothing to Japanese ships, while the Japanese were setting shit on fire and blowing up deck crews. Though more than a few of the 20 shells that hit the Mikasa found their mark and badly damaged it to the point that Togo was going to have to withdraw for fear it would Not sink. Not Togo! <laughs> Not that Togo. Oh, okay, we're good. Uh, though this whole thing is better if you think Togo the Disney dog is the admiral. Hey, that would be the cutest admiral ever. That's, that's canon now. He's, he's Dog Admiral. Uh, that's, that's a shirt idea. I'm going to go ahead and put that <laughs> one in the bank. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, that's a shirt. But before he did, he fired one last barrage of gunfire at the, Zhar, at the Zarevich, a barrage that just so happened to kill the Russian Admiral outright, as well as his entire command staff instantly. Oh, God. 
who the like, fuck would lead? <laughs> like, uh, imagine one last time Togo's like, Kobe, and just fires the shell and immediately, like, lands at, like, directly through the window of where the entire command staff is. You think he was looking from a distance like, oh, yeah, I meant to do that. Uh, First this try. also this also had a hilariously unattended side effect of jamming the control wheel of the Zarevich to the left. Fuck. This spun the ship around in 180 degrees, uncontrolled and unmanned, and sent it careening back towards its own fleet. (laughs) (laughs) On fire and full of corpses. Jesus Christ. By this point, it was clear that the attempt of the fleet to reach Vladivostok was a suicide mission, and the surviving remnants of the Russian Navy turned and followed the out-of-control zombie ship of their dead commander back towards the port. The dead is fucking punishing the living now. (laughs) <laughs> Russia reached the bottom of the barrel when it came to commanders so now the zombies in charge the Japanese originally intended to stop them from doing this but the running gun battle left too many of their ships damaged for them to run a, a, a risk of running into the Russian coastal defenses so they kind of had to just let them run um, and also to buy them time uh, one Russian ship continued towards Vladivostok alone through um, all of this how? Uh, the it, through all the chaos, it just slipped away. It, by that, I mean it abandoned all yeah. of its friends. <laughs> Do you think the Japanese were like, "Look, there's one going right now. Should we get it?" No, no, no. Let that one tell its story. It, it, it's <laughs> that scene from Star Wars. Like, there's no sign of life. Let it leave. Yeah, <laughs> we're just gonna we're just gonna let that ship leave. Okay. I mean, uh, technically, the Russian conscript is dead already. <laughs> so. This ship was called the Novik. It was alone and heavily damaged, but it managed to limp its way to the Sakhalin Islands off the coast of the Japanese home islands before being intercepted. It fought off two more Japanese ships what? Before, yeah, before running back to the port of Korskov. At and that sinking. Point it fucking deserves to go. Well, they were afraid they were going to be captured, like their ship was going to be captured, so they ran into a nearby port and then sank their own ship before surrendering. Hmm. Now, neither side uh, really achieved anything that they set off. to. This, like, the Russians wanted to reach Vladivostok, while the Japanese wanted to finally crush this fleet once and for all. Um, so you could call this like a strategic stalemate, though the Japanese definitely won. Um, it would be the end of the line for the Far East fleet. The Japanese had now killed two different, of the, two different admirals and smacked them around to the point they could no longer really function as a navy. So... When they got back to Port Arthur, the few functioning guns that could be salvaged were stripped from the ships and pressed into service on the ground. And then so were their crews. Fuck. That sucks. Like, you imagine guys surviving all of that. <laughs> imagine surviving all that. They're like, here's your rifle, sir. Like, wait, what's what's this? Like, oh, you're, there's a trench for you to sit in. Like, no, no, no. I'd rather go to my shitty zombie ship full of dead admirals. It'll be... Uh, kind of like no, it's all right. Your sh- your trench is kind of shaped like a boat, so you'll feel kind of <laughs> like at home. You can fit just as many corpses in there, and it's a little flooded, a little muddy. <laughs> so this battle was known as the Battle of the Yellow Sea, and as the first modern naval engagement between steel battleships. And because of that, there was a lot of growing pains. Like for instance, their guns could reach out and touch an enemy from eight miles away, an incredible distance for the day. But the problem was that their rangefinders couldn't uh, couldn't lead them from one to another. So, like, their guns could reach out and touch you from eight miles away, but their rangefinders could only like 
effectively target things at four miles away. Some of them only three miles away. So while both fleets opened fire from eight miles away, their aim was total dog shit, but it still wowed the international naval community that, that they actually managed to hit one another at all. Jesus. Um, but this also le- led to them coming up really close to one another with incredibly powerful guns. <laughs> that would suck too. Yeah, it just blew massive holes in each other's ships. <laughs> Fuck that. While the Japanese had achieved naval supremacy around Port Arthur, they still had not quite figured out how to crack the port itself. The siege had now gone on for months, and the dwindling Russian defenders had been holding them off every step of the way. Then Baron Nogi had been continually reinforced, meaning he could continually attack. Though this mostly just replaced his losses rather than built up his strength anymore, because all of the losses, you see, uh, he was really good at that. Uh, but he had also managed to be given uh, massive siege cannons that could fire a 500-pound shell for five miles. Fuck. <laughs> he began to rain this giant bastard down the Russians all day for weeks. They were so huge and made so much noise as they flew over their targets that the Russian soldiers nicknamed them the Roaring Trains. I can't even imagine that. And the Japanese fired 30,000 uh, 30, of these over the course of just a couple months. They said the flying train? The, the roaring train. Oh, the roaring train. All day. Just never sleeping, constantly being worried about being snuffed out of, uh, like, of existence by like, someone firing a goddamn Toyota Camry at you. Like, it's fucking just huge. Despite this, Nogi had lost his appetite for frontal assaults. Probably oh, on okay. a... <laughs> Probably on account of all the tens of thousands of soldiers that had died due to Russian machine gun fire at this point. He had uh, begun a campaign of tunneling, much like our Battle of the Crater episode, if anybody remembers that. Uh, Japanese soldiers began tunneling under the trenches in the walls of Port Arthur and filling them with tons of explosives. Jesus Christ. Inside the port, the Russians were holding, but only barely. The port's commander, General Anatoly Stessel, was beginning to lose faith. The defenders were running low on food, water, and ammo, and because of the tens of thousands of people that were shoved into such a small space, disease was running rampant through the ranks of the defenders, as well as the tens of thousands of civilians that were still trapped inside with them. Like, just lice and cholera and all sorts of awful shit on top of having to, like, shoot people as they tried to kill you. And then hopefully not get hit by a giant train. (laughs) Yeah. He spent his time sending countless letters to the Tsar, complaining for the total lack of support he was receiving, not only from the government, but from the naval officers who thought they didn't need to listen to him because he wore a different fancy hat. Ah, yes. While this was happening, Nogi was moving to drive another nail into his coffin. The so-called 203-meter hill overlooked the harbor itself. With the damaged remnants of the 1st Pacific Squadron were moored within, and and repairs were being attempted, mostly in order to turn them into gun platforms, like they weren't going to be a naval force anymore. The Russians knew how important this hill was and dug in miles of trench lines all around it, reinforcing them with timber and steel beams, hardened command structures, and intersecting and supporting fields of cannon and machine gun fire. It was through all of this that Nogi ordered t- dozens of frontal assaults. With, yeah, with big ca- anything? Big Cadorna energy in this one. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. The Battle of the Asanzo before the Asanzo because Luigi, Luigi Cadorna read this because Nogi's going to end up winning. Like, I'd like to think that like Cadorna read this and was like, ah, but this will eventually work. Oh, yes. 
Each one of these offensives and assaults were met with withering fire. No matter how many hours and how many times they tried, the Japanese soldiers ran into killing fields where they were repulsed. At one point, Nogi threw thousands of soldiers to their death because he wanted to finally ca- to capture the hill on the emperor's birthday. Instead, he gave the emperor 4,000 dead soldiers. Good enough. We brought you these just tons of dead people. I hope you like it's like a cat that brings you a dead mouse. Oh Thanks. yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Nogi's insane meat grinder battle plan killed so many uh of his soldiers that protests in Japan began to demand that he be relieved of command. Really? The, the only thing that stopped him was the president of the Imperial Privy Council and the Imperial Prince General Yamagata Iritomo, who told the Emperor that Nogi should be brought up on charges for his failures. Uh, finally the thing that saved Nogi from what was probably a date with his own ritual suicide was the emperor himself who intervened to save him because he was an aristocrat to be fair Um, but all of the other generals who are above Nogi uh, warned him that like look the emperor may have stepped in to save you this time but you're not going to have more than one more chance before he has no choice but to order you to kill yourself which was absolutely something that the Emperor still did back then. Oh, yeah. Nogi's army was reinforced again, now numbering around 100,000 men. Notice that's 50,000 less than it was. Maybe, I don't know how to put it. (laughs) Once again, he ordered them up the hill, this time started by 11-inch naval cannons, and they succeeded, though at a cost of another 8,000 men. Fuck. With 203-meter hill in their hands, the Russian fleet, or what remained of it, was now helpless. The Japanese brought up their guns and one by one used indirect artillery fire and a spotter, which was considered revolutionary for its day, uh, and the Russian fleet was killed one by one where it sat. This has gone down in modern military history, and maybe all of history, is the most destruction ever brought to bear by land-based weapons on a naval force. Fuck. Stessel watched on helplessly as the Japanese destroyed the fleet, and as other Russian military forces that could be used to relieve him were instead sent to the city of Mukden to begin uh, to begin digging in rather than relieve him. <gasps> then, just when he thought his life couldn't get any worse, the Japanese blew up all those fucking mines I just told you about. Jesus. Under him? Uh, yeah, it was like <laughs> under a whole bunch of his hills, <laughs> and it killed thousands of people. Um, and then, like, the Japanese began coming into town. Yeah. You just have those days where you just know it's not your day. Like, you know he had to, like, sit back, take off his officer's cap, and be like, man, today can't get any worse. And then, like, a damn near nuclear bomb goes off outside. (laughs) Fuck, Uh, that sucks. Stessel decided uh, the point of defending the port, that being the fleet, was lost uh, after they all became surprise submarines thanks to Japanese guns. So he reasoned, probably rightly, that continued fighting was pointless and hopeless, as he had no ability to lift the siege or even break out. Stessel, under a white flag, walked out to meet the Japanese general and surrendered without talking to anyone in his chain of command or talking to the, the, the minister of war or the czar first. This not only surprised the Japanese, who assumed that the, uh, the Russians had plenty of fight left in them, but it also surprised all of his officers. Um, but more surprised than anyone probably was Tsar Nicholas himself, who had never even been consulted about the idea of surrender. Now, Stessel probably knew this, uh, and that like his request to surrender would be denied and just decided to do it himself. 
Um, this is also why he was sentenced to death uh, oh, by the fuck. czar for disobeying orders from the czar himself. Thankfully, this is later pardoned. Uh, but that is how the port, or the siege of Port Arthur would end. And that is where we will pick up next week. That sounds fucking awful. You're going to have to be more specific. On both ends. I wouldn't want to be on either side. Yeah, and that's something that like I've noticed. Um, this war is generally framed as the Japanese just ran roughshaw over the Russians and they didn't stand a chance. Which, I mean, if you look, if, if you're like inhuman and like just look at the outcome of every battle, that's largely true. Um, but the Japanese were like pretty much doing a Verdun every single battle, like just throwing people in, refusing to take a step back and just hoping to drown the Russians in their own blood. <laughs> I mean, and like, as we get to episode four, which is where this series ends, you're, you're going to see why this ends up being a detriment to the Japanese. Like, cause like eventually you run out of people. Right? Yeah. Um, and like also the Russians, um, but like they're all of these casualty numbers are incredibly high, but like, this is a direct reason and result of like the same thing that people would blame like the high casualty numbers of World War One on, and that is advanced weapons, not advanced technology, or like advanced technology and weapons, not advanced tactics, and a whole bunch of people. Like a good example is like when the Japanese commanders literally fought his first war with a fucking sword. So like they're not exactly they they don't have the most advanced tactics. They have no understanding of modern modern combat. And they have very little inclination of wanting to understand it because this is just how we've always done it. Now go die. Yeah. Like they don't really see the difference of like marching in line to go get got by a Maxim. And then they did like marching in line, like to give like a full volley if you were still using a muzzle loader or whatever. Like the tactics are virtually identical. Um, but every once in a while you get someone to figure out like, wait, if we arch these machine guns up and these are pieces of artillery... They'll go over our soldiers and land on theirs. And then we can march our soldiers right into that and not have any way to call the artillery off and also kill ours. Perfect. Great idea. Precisely. Yeah. So, Nick, thank you for joining me. Everybody else, we will see you next week. But until then, uh, uh, don't attempt to take a Russian hill on the emperor's birthday. No. It's not a great one. I got nothing.